Welcome to Snap Sessions, an episodic podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name's Doug Nunn. I'm joined by Techmeister Marshall Downtown Brown and voiceover colossus Ken Krause, and by our artist of the show. Our artist of the show is caricaturist, improviser, and filmmaker Daniel Stieglitz from Kassel in Germany. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. The following Snap Sessions segment, a tribute to Monty Python's Flying Circus's classic film comedy, The Life of Brian, is dedicated to the Pythons who've gone on, Graham Chapman and Terry Jones. The Life of Brian. In the fall of 1979, I saw a film which inspired me and fueled a writing surge for me as a wannabe comedy skit writer. It was The Life of Brian from Monty Python's Flying Circus one of my favorite movies ever, and definitely one of the funniest movies ever made. Monty Python's Life of Brian is a 1979 British comedy starring and written by the comedy group Monty Python. Graham Chapman, John Cleese, Terry Gilliam, Eric Idle, Terry Jones, and Michael Palin. It was also directed by Jones. The film tells the story of Brian Cohen, played by Chapman, a young Jewish man who was born on the same day as, and next door to, Jesus Christ, and is subsequently mistaken for the Messiah. There are a number of great scenes in this film, beginning at the beginning. Sounds biblical, doesn't it? There is the Python version of the Sermon on the Mount. In 33 AD, afternoon around tea time, with a distant Jesus spouting the genuine words of the sermon, but with the Python crowd being too far away to really understand anything. Could you be quiet, please? What was that? I don't know. It's too busy talking a big nose. I think it was blessed are the cheesemakers. What's so special about the cheesemakers? Well, obviously, it's not meant to be taken literally. It refers to any manufacturers of dairy products. See, if you haven't been going on, we'd have heard that, big nose. Hey! Say that once more, I'll smash your bloody face in. Better keep listening. Might be a bit about blessed are the big noses. Oh, lay off him. Well, blessed is just about everyone with a vested interest in the status quo, as far as I can tell, Rich. Yeah, well, what Jesus blatantly fails to appreciate is it's the meat who are the problem. Yes, yes, absolutely, Rich. Yes, I see. There is a scene chronicling the stoning of an old man for daring to mention the sacred word Jehovah one night at dinner, with stone-throwing women wearing beards to the stoning so they could be allowed to throw rocks, because normally only men are allowed. Because it's written, that's why. There is a scene with an underemployed beggar who used to be a leper until Jesus put him out of business by healing him. So he's now an ex-leper forced to beg for alms for an ex-leper and calls Jesus a bloody do-gooder. Brian goes to work at the Colosseum selling Roman concessions. Locks tongues, otters noses, ocelot spleens, while some poor Christian makes a mockery of a gladiator down below. There he meets four members of the People's Front of Judea, the PFJ. We meet their shop steward, Reg, and Stan, who never wants to forget women. They give Brian his first revolutionary assignment, 
to paint graffiti all over the Roman statues at the local forum, and his Latin invariably invites scrutiny reminiscent of a horrible Latin lesson. Come on, come on. The Romanus goes like Annus. What can it plural of Annus is? Annie? Romani. Aunt? What is Aunt? Go. Conjugate the verb to go. Here, uh, eh. Uh, Aunt is it. It must. It is Aunt. So Aunt is? Uh, uh, third person plural, uh, present indicative. Uh, they go. But Romans go home is an order, so you must use the. Yeah, imperative. Which is? Um, oh, oh, um, e. How e. many Romans? And then, with Brian's triumph of insulting the Romans fresh, he heads for a meeting of the People's Front of Judea, with Reg leading the group and asking, What have the Romans ever given us? Don't labor the point. And what have they ever given us in return? The aqueduct? What? The aqueduct? Oh, yeah, yeah, they did give us that. Uh, that's true, yeah. And the sanitation. Oh, yeah, the sanitation, Reg. Remember what the city used to be like? Yeah, all right, I'll grant you, the aqueduct, the sanitation, the two things the Romans have done. And the roads. Well, yeah, obviously yeah. the roads. I mean, the roads go without sand, don't they? But apart from the sanitation, the aqueduct and the roads... Irrigation. Medicine. Huh? Education. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, all right, fair enough. And the wine. Yeah, yeah, that's something we'd really miss, Reg, if the Romans left. <laughs> Public baths. And it's safe to walk in the streets at night now, Reg. Yeah, they certainly know how to keep order. Let's face it, the only ones who could in a place like this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but apart from the sanitation, the medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, roads, a fresh water system and public health, what have the Romans ever done for us? Brought peace? Oh, peace! Shut up! I truly think that is one of the greatest scenes in the history of comedy. But there is more. Brian is thrown in prison with the prisoner, Michael Palin, who has been tortured repeatedly and is resentful of how easy Brian has it. Oh, you lucky bastard! Then he is brought before Punch's pilot, who oddly has a speech impediment, as do all his aristocratic friends. There is Biggest Dickus and his wife, Incontinentia Buttocks. Brian escapes and manages to make it to the marketplace where he is forced to haggle incessantly and then ends up as one of a group of wannabe prophets trying to impress a crowd of jaded, burnt-out holylanders. Knowing he has to pretend to be a prophet to survive, Brian spouts a series of pithy-sounding banalities and then runs off leaving his gourd and accidentally kicking off his sandal. With the crowd deliriously on his heels, Brian's every move is suddenly one of great religious significance. What follows is effectively a short look at the history of religious schism. He has given us a sign! Oh. He has given us a shoe! A shoe is the sign! Let us follow his example! What? Let us, like him, hold up one shoe and let the other be upon our foot, for this is his sign that all who follow him shall do likewise! Yes. No, no, no! The shoe is a sign that we must... Gather shoes together in abundance. Cast off the shoes. Follow the gourd. No, let us gather shoes together. Let me. No, no, it is a sign of like him. We must think not of the things of the body, but of the face and head. Give me your shoe. Get off. Follow the gourd, the holy gourd of Jerusalem. The gourd. Hold up the sandal as he has commanded us. It is a shoe. It is a shoe. It is a sandal. Cast it away. 
Put it on! I'm clear off! Take the shoes and follow him! No one has ever written a better explanation of either the 1054 A.D. split of Catholicism from Orthodoxy or of the Protestant Reformation. From this point on, Brian ends up a prophet, whether he likes being one or not, and the road leads to crucifixion. Poor guy ends up on a cross, along with the usual group of thieves and scoundrels. The Pythons had written the funniest look at the New Testament ever, and although they shared a distrust of organized religion, they were not out to shame anyone. Despite being non-believers, they agreed that Jesus was definitely a good guy, and found nothing to mock in his actual teachings. He's not particularly funny. What he's saying isn't mockable. It is very decent stuff, said Eric Idle later. The film contains themes of religious satire that were controversial at the time of its release, drawing accusations of blasphemy and protests from some religious groups. 39 local authorities in the United Kingdom either imposed an outright ban or imposed an X rating, effectively preventing the film from being shown. Whole parts of the southern United States banned the film, as well as parts of the Midwest. Some countries, including Ireland and Norway, banned its showing, with a few of these bans lasting decades. The filmmakers used such notoriety to benefit their marketing campaign, with posters in Sweden reading, So funny, it was banned in Norway. After the film came out in Britain, Malcolm Muggeridge and the Bishop of Southwark, Mervyn Stockwood, confronted Python's John Cleese and Michael Palin on Friday night, Saturday morning show. Tim Rice moderated a sort of debate on the life of Brian versus Christianity. Cleese and Palin were at pains to point out that they were not ridiculing Christianity. The, the problem that we... No, seriously, the problem yes. that, we, that we have got is, is that you think that we're ridiculing Jesus. Mm. And we say, um, sort of sincerely and truthfully, mm. that that is certainly not what we intended to do, and I believe that we're not. And I can best answer that, I think, by answering Melvin's um, question, which is that um, what were we trying to do? And I think it, it comes out, it was spelled out perhaps rather too plainly, rather too banally at one point, when he says, make up your own mind, don't let other people tell you. And we would absolutely deny, at least I would, that there was any attempt to say you should not believe in Christ. What we're saying is take a critical view, find out about it, don't just believe because somebody tells you to. Somebody in the pulpit says something, question it, work it out. I mean, 400 years ago, we would have been burnt for this film. Now, I'm suggesting that we've made an advance. Mm. And I'm suggesting... <laughs> As an ex-Lutheran, baptized, confirmed, and an altar boy, St. Matthew's Lutheran Church, Walnut Creek, California, I took no offense and truly enjoyed the silliness of this lovely little film. I noticed that the Pythons were irreverent, but they spent more time mocking politics and societal structures that never really change. What the film does do is place modern stereotypes in a historical setting, which enables it to indulge in a number of sharp digs, the job of comedians since the beginning of time. I will always love Monty Python, and please look for Snap Sessions tributes in the future. In the meantime, allow yourself to take another look at The Life of Brian, truly one of the funniest films ever made. And remember this good advice that comes in the final song. Always look on the bright side of life. Always look on the light side of life. 
If life seems jolly rotten, there's something you've forgotten. And that's to laugh and smile and dance and sing. When you're feeling in the dumps, don't be silly chumps. Just purse your lips and whistle, that's the thing. And always look on the bright side of life. Come on. Always look on the right side of life. For life is quite absurd, and death's the final word. You must always face the curtain with a bow. Forget about your scene, give the audience a grin. Enjoy it, it's your last chance anyhow. So always look on the bright side of death. Just before you draw your terminal breath Life's a piece of shit when you look at it Life's a laugh and death's a joke, it's true You'll see it's all a show, keep them laughing as you go Just remember that the last laugh is on you And always Voter fraud is bogus. It's Republican for voter suppression. It's coming down. The next four years are up to you. You'll change the world. Donald Trump came into office in January of 2017, maintaining that there had been massive voter fraud in the 2016 election. Five million people voted illegally for Hillary Clinton, he claimed. And this was his big excuse for losing the popular vote by almost three million. He appointed former Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach. What a maroon! <laughs> what an ignoramus! <laughs> to form a Commission on Election Integrity at the federal level to protect the integrity of the voting process. But is there really a problem of voter fraud? Oh, no. 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 No, 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 no. Who are all these fake voters supposedly rushing into the country to vote Democratic? Or is this all just bullshit? Warning, warning, bullshit alert. Meant to hide a different reality. That the Republican Party is going out of its way to suppress voting by people of color. Trump's bimbo voting czar was Kobach, the former Kansas Secretary of State and gubernatorial candidate. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Who has been preaching his gospel of baloney. Okay, so when it comes to deli meat, does it get any worse than baloney? to Republican lawmakers for years. He had won lots of true believers, even though he failed to identify more than a tiny handful of possible cases of fraud. That's not that much, really. Yeah, really. Let's get out of here. In his eight years as Kansas Secretary of State, he secured a total of nine convictions, only one of which was for illegal voting by a non-citizen. Most of the other handful were for double voting by older Republican men. Emory University professor Carol Anderson has written about the problem in her One Person, No Votes book and appeared on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah in October 2019. 
It was born up out of the 2000 election, that horrible election with hanging chads. Right. And, and that myth of massive rampant voter fraud coming out of the cities, uh, stealing our elections. Except when they really went hunting for it, they couldn't find it. Um, Justin Levitt, a, a law professor out of California, he looked. And he went from 2000 to 2014. Out of one billion votes, he was able to identify 31 cases. 31 out of 1 billion votes of voter impersonation fraud. According to a study by the Brennan Center for Justice, this means the rates of actual voter fraud are between 0.00004% and 0.0009%. The whole system makes me feel insignificant. Excellent. You've made a real breakthrough. I have? Yes, Z. You are insignificant. The center calculated that someone is more likely to be struck by lightning than to commit voter fraud. This might seem like a big joke until you remember these laws have already had an effect. In Kansas, more than 22,000 people who tried to register had their applications suspended or canceled for not having proof of citizenship. And in Wisconsin, which President Trump won by fewer than 23,000 votes. That's not that much, really. A strict voter ID law kept at least 17,000 voters from the polls in 2016. Seven months after Trump's installing of Kobach's commission and meetings filled with futile infighting. Leave me alone! What do you mean you leave you alone? I don't want what? you! What are you talking about? I don't care anymore! I just don't care anymore! The commission folded having found no fraud and issuing no recommendations. What a surprise! There was nothing to find in the first place. There had been no rush of non-citizens voting, despite Trump's bogus claims that he lost the popular vote only because of millions of illegal voters. And there were hardly any examples of in-person voter fraud, the only kind that could conceivably be stopped by voter ID laws. A federal judge once compared such laws to using a sledgehammer to hit either a real or imaginary fly on a glass coffee table. Let's hear John Oliver's take on voter IDs on Last Week Tonight. Because not everyone actually does have ID. In Texas alone, at least half a million registered voters do not have the form of ID necessary to vote. North Carolina and Wisconsin have roughly 300,000 voters apiece with neither a driver's license nor a state ID. And in Virginia, an estimated 200,000 voters may not have one. And if you think about it, you probably know at least one person who doesn't have an ID, whether it's your grandma who had her license taken away, uh, your recluse uncle who rollerblades everywhere, <laughs> or your cousin who lost his license after his third DUI. Come on, Jace, you can't fool a breathalyzer by whispering the word sober into it. In the end, Kobach was humiliated in federal court, where the judge sanctioned him by ordering him to take a legal class on the rules of evidence and procedure, which is normally part of the mandatory continuing legal education classes that many attorneys take to maintain their law licenses. All because Kobach was pushing a mythology of voter fraud and silly laws that might possibly prevent voter impersonation. A very rare problem, according to John Oliver. Voter ID doesn't prevent those crimes. 
The only crime it prevents is voter impersonation. One person showing up to the polls pretending to be someone they're not. Which is a pretty stupid crime. Because you have to stand in line at a polling place and risk five years in prison and a $10,000 fine, all to cast one probably not consequential extra vote. In terms of pointless crimes, it's right up there with forging a Bed Bath & Beyond coupon. It's a lot of trouble with low reward. The real reason for all this bullshit about voter fraud is a fear of democracy in action. The Republicans are chicken shit (laughs) when it comes to people actually exercising their right to vote. If they really believed in hearing the Vox Populi, shouldn't they be encouraging people to vote? Wouldn't it be better to know they'd earned people's votes? But as Donald Trump recently admitted in one of his proverbial tweets... Uh, they had things, uh, levels of voting that if you ever agreed to it, you'd never have a Republican elected in this country again. The sad news is that the United States, for all its crowing about being exceptional, has low voter participation. Only 55.7% of the voting age population cast ballots in the 2016 presidential election. That's not that much, really. Representing a slight uptick compared with 2012, but less than in the record year of 2008. This puts the U.S. behind most of its peers in the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, most of whose members are highly developed democratic states. Looking at the most recent nationwide elections in OECD nations, the United States placed 26 out of 32 in voter participation. A feeble case for American exceptionalism. The highest turnout rates among OECD nations were in Australia. So I jumped out of bed and all I had was me undies on. Consistently over 90% with voting required. Belgium came from Brussels, 87.2%. Sweden, British Queen, 82.6%. And Denmark, Danish language has always been impossible to understand for most Scandinavians, 80.3%. In many countries, the government pushes to get people's names on the rolls, whether by registering them automatically once they become eligible, as in Sweden or Germany, or by aggressively seeking out and registering eligible voters, as in the UK and Australia. In the U.S., by contrast, registration is mostly an individual responsibility. Down here, you're on your own. And because of that, only about 64% of the U.S. voting age population was registered in 2016. That's not that much, really. Compared with 91% in Canada and the U.K., 96% in Sweden, and 99% in Slovakia. (laughs) Shouldn't the United States be encouraging more voter turnout instead of bitching about non-existent voter fraud? The real problem with voting in this country is not a bunch of scary immigrants forcing their falsified IDs on poll workers. It's Republican legislators pushing to reduce voter participation in the faint hope of limiting the true voice of the people. (laughs) Well, for once, the rich white man is in control. Over the past decade, half the states in the nation have placed new direct burdens on people's right to vote fueled by a partisan 2013 Supreme Court decision that struck down a key provision of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. And the racist motivations behind these supposedly race-neutral laws 
are hard to escape. Take strict voter ID laws. These laws require voters to present a government-issued photo ID in order to vote, and they offer no meaningful fallback options for people who do not possess one of these IDs. Strict voter ID laws are often defended by reference to a racially neutral need to defend the integrity of elections. Specifically, defenders claim that voter ID laws are needed to combat voter impersonation fraud. But as shown above, voter impersonation fraud is exceptionally rare. That's not that much, really. The reality is that millions of potential voters have no IDs, and they are disproportionately people of color. Once again, Carol Anderson. As we all know, it, it doesn't quite work that way. So, for instance, in Alabama, Alabama said you got to have a government-issued photo ID. And then said, but your public housing ID does not count. Now, Alabama's a poor state. They've got lots of public housing. 71% of those on public housing, in public housing in Alabama are African-American. For many, that's the only ID they have. So you automatically wiped away that type of government-issued photo ID. And Texas permits voters to use a handgun license to vote, but not a student ID from a state university. Coincidentally, more than 80% of handgun licenses were issued to white Texans, while more than half of the students in the University of Texas system are racial or ethnic minorities. Across the U.S., approximately 1 in 10 Americans do not have a government-issued photo ID. But approximately one in four African Americans do not have a government-issued photo ID. And 15% of Americans who earn less than 35000 a year do not have a government-issued photo ID. As you know, we're a few weeks away from the scariest, spookiest time of the year. The midterm elections. <laughs> I'm going to go as millions of illegal votes. Anyway... Uh, The midterms are in 19 days. And this year, this year, every single vote counts. But there are a few states that are looking to change that. As the midterm elections rapidly approach, there's been a rash of voter identification conflicts in states across the country. Laws across the U.S. are being passed to make it harder not easier to vote. Since the 2016 election, nine states with Republican state legislatures have passed laws restricting the vote. We've seen time and time again when Republicans can't win outright as far as votes, then they resort to what many would call cheating. Ah, come on, Republicans. Instead of trying to appeal to diverse voters, you just rather try and block their votes, huh? It's like being a contestant on Jeopardy, and instead of trying to win by being the smartest person, you just spend all your time tasing your competition. <laughs> and the worst part is that Alex Trebek probably wouldn't help you. You'd be like, ah! Alex would be like, I'm sorry, we were looking for what is ah? <laughs> what a chicken shit <laughs> argument the Republicans are putting forth. Sadly, they are building on American history. There were things to praise about some of the founding fathers, but the strength of their democratic impulses was rarely one of them. Initially, only propertied white men were allowed to vote. I'm so glad I'm not poor. I'm squeaky clean. Fuck you. And then by the 1830s, more white men, then all men, a short amount of time after the Civil War, then back to white men and women, then finally, with the overturning of Jim Crow and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, 
everyone. Yes, it only took a hundred years after the Civil War, the war to end slavery, that African Americans finally broke through to have their votes secured by the Voting Rights Act of 1965. The Confederacy lost the Civil War, but through Jim Crow laws after Reconstruction, effectively kept ex-slaves and their black descendants from voting, serving on juries, or exercising any civil rights for most of the following 100 years. Here's how voting worked in the South from about 1875 to 1975. Let's take the case of Clarence Gaskin, a black voter in Georgia looking to cast his ballot for president on Election Day in 1960. Four unanswerable questions awaited Mr. Gaskins upon his arrival at his designated polling place. He was ushered into a room that held a jar of corn, a cucumber, a watermelon, and a bar of soap. He was informed that in order to vote, he first had to answer the following correctly. Riddle me this! How many kernels of corn are in the jar? How many bumps on the cucumber? How many seeds in the watermelon? And how many bubbles in the bar of soap? Clarence didn't bother guessing once the polling official admitted there were no right answers. His vote was neither cast nor counted. Well, well, well. My old friend racism. I've been expecting you. Then came the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which along with the Civil Rights Act of 1964, sought to put an end to discrimination and to finally put teeth into the 14th and 15th Amendments. Acting after the terrible police attack on civil rights demonstrators in Selma, Alabama in early 1965, the Voting Rights Act was passed with large majorities that summer. President Johnson spoke to a joint session of Congress. It is wrong, deadly wrong, to deny any of your fellow Americans the right to vote in this country. Even G.W. Bush's appointee, Chief Justice Roberts, said in 2013 the VRA's strong medicine was the right response to entrenched racial discrimination. When it was first enacted, he said, black voter registration stood at 6.4% in Mississippi. That's not that much, really. And the gap between black and white registration rates was more than 60 percentage points. In the 2004 election, the last before the law was reauthorized, the black registration rate in Mississippi was 76%. Sounds like quite an improvement. The problem is the consistent resolve of Southern racists and their Republican allies beginning with Ronald Reagan in the 1980s, to find fault with the VRA and to look for opportunities to reinforce their racist friends. I know politics for you, but I feel like a hypocrite talking to you and your racist friend. Chief Justice Roberts was actually on the racist side, and when the case of Shelby County, Alabama, versus Holder, President Obama's attorney general, came up in 2013, Roberts saw it as a way to whittle away those voting rights. Roberts maintained that a statute's current burdens must be justified by current needs, and any disparate geographic coverage 
must be sufficiently related to the problem that it targets. But as Ruth Bader Ginsburg pointed out, first-generation barriers to ballot access led to second-generation barriers, like racial gerrymandering, and laws requiring at-large voting in places with a sizable black minority. In other words, the racists were still whining and still looking for openings. Justice Sotomayor added that the court's majority entirely ignores the history of voter suppression. All right, move on. Nothing to see here. Please disperse. Nothing to see here. Please. Against which the VRA was enacted and upholds a program that appears to further the very disenfranchisement of minority and low-income voters that Congress set out to eradicate. As these examples make clear, race continues to play a key role in the voting process. The racial components of new voting restrictions are still here, but they have become more subtly legalistic. Commenting on this change, civil rights activist Reverend William Barber II said, Jim Crow did not retire. He went to law school and launched a second career. I'm a lawyer. Meet James Crow, Esquire. Thank you, Reverend Barber. The reality in the United States is that the government should be encouraging people to vote, whether or not it means their partisan cause is winning or losing. We have an obligation to get people out, to solicit their opinions, to run a government based on the will of the majority, not of a declining demographic of white racists. New numbers from the U.S. Census predict within 25 years, non-Hispanic whites will be in the minority in America. One of the wonders of the 2008 election that brought us Barack Obama was seeing so many people vote, the largest participation rate in generations. We should exult in this movement toward democracy, not inhibit it. So stop being chicken shits, Republicans. <laughs> Let people vote. Let's hear concluding thoughts from Trevor Noah. We can go back and forth on this all day, right? But I, I think I know how to solve this. This is what I think we should do. Every black person in America needs to register as a Republican. Right? No, hear me out, hear me out. Just say you're going to vote red. You don't have to do it. Just be like, I'm a Republican. When you go and vote, you can do whatever you want. When you come out, they ask you who you voted for. Just be like, yo, snitches get stitches. That's all you do. That's all you do. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you, if the GOP thinks that black people are voting for them, they will make sure that your vote counts. They're going to be waving Trayvons into the voting booth like a third base coach. Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us on Patreon. We depend on the support of listeners like you. Hello, I'm here with Daniel Stieglitz. I met Daniel originally coming to Kassel in Germany as an improv coach. And Daniel was one of the players. And then I discovered that Daniel was also what's called a Schnellzeichner in German, which is kind of a, a live caricaturist. Daniel does these amazingly fast drawings where he can sit down across from you and five minutes later, he can draw something that looks like a wonderful caricature of you. I welcome you, Daniel. Welcome, Doc. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm sitting, actually, in Daniel's um, house in, in Kassel. 
He has a wife and two wonderful daughters, and we're here right now in Kassel. We wanted to talk about your varieties of your career because you are a Schnellzeichner, a caricaturist, a fast drawer. You're also a filmmaker. You're an improviser. You're an animator. You do all kinds of work. Tell us a little bit about your childhood. We always want to know how a young artist got started. As most of the children, I started drawing from the very beginning. Every child likes to draw. I would say. My two daughters like to draw. So I always loved to draw and I always loved reading comic books. So that's when I started, I'm not sure, at the age of five or six, trying to redraw the characters from those comic books. Which ones did you especially like? Do you know Asterix? Yeah, Asterix. sure. Asterix yes. is famous, more famous in Europe. He was fighting against the Romans yes. back uh, 2,000 yes. years ago. Yeah. And my uh, father had, had the complete collection of all the Asterix books. So, and one morning I got ill and I wasn't uh, able to go to school, but both of my parents are teachers. So I had to be alone at home and he gave me an Asterix comic book. And that's when I kind of inhaled this first comic and I wanted to read the next one. And then it came out that uh, he had the whole collection, 28 uh, of those comic books. And I really fell in love, not only with comic books, but with this special style. And you know, the, the artist Uderso, mm -hmm. and he, he does lots of, he did lots of caricatures within the Asterix books. Oh, okay. For example, there's a character, it's a caricature of Sean Connery, okay. for example. Yeah. So there are several French, but also European actors, famous actors and musicians hidden within uh, the comics. Mm -hmm. Yes. So you you were interested at an early age in drawing famous people too, or at least you were s sort of somewhat interested as a child. I, I didn't know Sean Connery at that time. Yeah. But I I loved the level of exaggeration in this comic book. Isn't Mickey Mouse is is a kind of caricature of a mouse, but it it isn't yeah. really a caricature. But I think Asterix the style of making it more simple and of exaggeration and reduction. That's what I kind of still do. If somebody, for example, if somebody has a giant, a large nose, a large nose, suddenly yes. Daniel Stieglitz makes it a giant nose or something like that. Yes, but not as giant as, for example, the American colleagues. You know, mm -hmm. they sometimes go crazy with noses. They really, <laughs> there are some really, really good artists. Make, for example, in San Diego, uh -huh. have you ever heard of Nate Kapnicki? I uh, have not actually. Uh -huh. Yes, he's he's a caricature artist from San Diego, and he he does really crazy mm -hmm. stuff. And I'm I do a bit more, not that much exaggerated. It's more kind of cartoony, a bit of cartoony. Yes, I think it. I'm not sure if you would say it looks European kind of style. Mm -hmm. Within the first day I knew you, you had drawn a caricature of me, and you had been making pancakes and you put onions in them, and you drew a caricature of me because I had been doing some improv stuff, and you said, my love is like a pancake with onions. And suddenly, there was a guy who looked like me and was noticeably me, but at the same time was caricatured. And I thought, I, I said, I love this kind of stuff. And you told me that from early on, your dad reminded you of how hard you would have to work if you wanted to become good at something like caricaturing. Tell us about how you think an artist had to work to develop, and tell us about that insight your father gave you. My father, to which I have a very good relation, and my mother too, and I have two, a brother and a sister, and I had a happy childhood, mm -hmm. to answer the first question. Yeah. And I think if you want to become good in, in anything, you can. 
you just have to practice. Mm -hmm. If you want to become a good cook, I think everyone can become a good cook if you really practice hard and you try and try and try and you, you learn the uh, theory and you practice and you practice. And I think you can become good in playing the violin or the guitar or becoming good. I'm not sure if, you, if everyone can become a good improv player. Yeah, Because I'm, I think yeah. improv theater is a bit more about your inner self. And if you are an introverted guy, you if will... If you're sort of verklempt, it's yes. kind of hard for it to yes. come out. Yeah. You will uh -huh. never be a good improv player. And I think drawing or caricature drawing or music is much more a hand to handcraft. You were then drawing and perhaps somebody said, Boy, Stieglitz, you're pretty good at this. Uh, and you said, yeah, well, I enjoy doing it. And then suddenly you're working at home. Do you draw picture after picture of something to get it right? How does that work? If it's a hobby, if you like doing it, then it's not kind of, I have to practice. I have to practice drawing because when I sat at home, there was a pen, there was a paper, and I loved reading those books. Yeah. And I just started to redraw them and then try to draw them from memory. And the first pictures weren't just as satisfying. The more you try and you want them to look like the original drawings. So by practicing, they're getting better and better and better. Mm -hmm. I think I was about six, seven, eight years, mm -hmm. years old. My dad maybe just said, if you want to, to earn money with that someday, you will have to practice. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't work for me. And I wasn't uh, sitting at home for f uh, five hours every mm -hmm. day, mm -hmm. like a violin master or... or Somebody some playing practice no, piano. No, no, not oh. for me. I, mm -hmm. I doodled around in school. I mm -hmm. love to just... Love drawing, but I didn't become better that easy or mm -hmm. that fast mm -hmm. because I, it wasn't really practicing. If I had a teacher mm -hmm. or a mentor who would take me by the hand and show me some tricks, I might have evolved or become better much, much, much faster or easier. But for me, there wasn't the goal of I have to become good or better. Right. Or, yeah. Did you actually draw pictures of your friends? Did you do? At did you day, start in the, in those like in school? Did you actually start doing that? Friend uh, teachers. Teachers. Oh, teachers. there you go. Yeah, yeah, classic. classic. This is yeah. classic. <laughs> so you're in the back of the class drawing a picture of the yes. teacher, and yeah. you're. I mean, I'm guessing your friends start giggling about giggling, it. Yes. Tell me about this. You're drawing pictures of teachers. Well, it was kind of the first coming out with drawing, getting reactions, the mm -hmm. people smile, and then for the first time, you the people start smiling you. It's like publishing. Oh, yeah. It was kind mm -hmm. of the first uh, publications, yes, uh -huh. for me. And I, I love doing that, definitely. And it was encouraging in drawing more stupid and more exaggerated. Did you have any particular teachers who actually laughed out loud or who thought, hey, Stieglitz, what are you doing? And then came up and... Yes, the chemistry your... teacher. Yeah, there yeah. was one. The chemistry... Yeah. His name was Bergman, like uh, Mountain Man. Yeah. Bergman, yes. Uh -huh. and, he, and I invented him as a because of the man. Uh -huh. Like Batman, Superman, Bergman. Uh -huh. So he was, the, he was kind of a chemistry superhero and uh -huh. uh, <laughs> did some comic stories about him, yes. Uh -huh. And then did he discover that or did you... Yes, he uh -huh. did. So he even Tell hang, us about this. He even hang one picture into the classroom because uh -huh. he liked it. But I, I think I overdid it. So uh -huh. <laughs> when it was too much, he said, yeah, now stop drawing back to school now. Cut yeah. it off. Cut yeah. it out, Stieglitz. Cut it off. <laughs>
I know you you came to here to Kassel. You studied animation, illustration, and filmmaking here at the Kunsthochschule here in Kassel. And presumably this gave you a chance to expand in, in your knowledge and maybe to meet some mentors. So tell us about your time as a student and how these areas of study maybe helped influence you as an artist. Yes, you know, you have to know that the Kunsthochschule Kassel is a very free and liberal university. So there aren't any grades, there aren't any exams, you don't have to pass any tests. So you just start studying. You wow. normally study for five years. Wow. And okay. after that, nearly everyone gets an A because you you kind of learn to know the professors very good mm -hmm. and you drink alcohol together. So you just get an A. So you don't learn that much from your professors, to be honest. Okay. But I learned a lot from the other students. And age doesn't count that much when you're on a university. If you're 20 or 25 or 30, that it doesn't matter that much. Mm -hmm. So that's why I got together with a 30-year-old and a 25-year-old. And they were very, very good, yes, craftsmen already. Mm -hmm. So And I learned most from them. So did you uh, do stuff like draw together and then compare things? Or were you drawing in class and given assignments? Maybe describe a little bit of the atmosphere. Yes, for example, there was uh, one professor that influenced me, which class I liked a lot, and he just gave us one topic mm -hmm. each week. And the topic could be love, or could be strange feeling, or could be stone, or flying stone. It was not, a, not just a normal word, but it was a kind of inspiring mm -hmm. word combination or word. And then everyone could do whatever he or she liked within that week. And afterwards, we came all together in the morning and then we compared the pictures. And most of the time, the people didn't show their works before that because everyone oh, wanted yeah. to see they wanted what to the be fresh surprised. reaction. Yes, they, they wanted, wanted we to, wanted to yeah. surprise each other. And that was challenging. And I wanted to be creative and I wanted to be the one where the people, the same situation as in the school again. I wanted to see the reactions, maybe see a giggle, see a laugh, see a smile or see a, oh, wow. And I always try to not do the first idea, but to think a bit further and think outside the box and, and do the, yes. It sounds like the Kunsthochschule was a place that was somewhat outside of the box to yeah, begin yeah. with. All the time, yes. It uh -huh. was very free. You could join each class you liked. There were classes for photography and for filmmaking. Mm -hmm. I didn't start studying filmmaking in the first place. I started animation. And then I, I saw that there was an illustration class. And I always liked drawing. So why not be part of the illustration class as well? Mm -hmm. And then... With my first animation tests, I, I saw that I have to know something about filmmaking, about cutting, about screenwriting, because animation is a special uh, form of filmmaking. So I joined the filmmaking class. And yes, so it was very free and you can't, it was a place where you could discover your inner self. You, that, I think that's, that yeah. was the main task. They always say, said, if you want to get better in drawing... You can just go to the VHS course. Mm -hmm. A folk school. Folk yeah. Adult yes. night school is another night way school. we would go yeah. to night school and mm -hmm. learn drawing or buy mm -hmm. some drawing book. That's not about uh, art school. Art mm -hmm. school is about art, finding some kind of voice or some kind of style inside mm -hmm. of you, something you want to tell, something. Yes, and that that was most of the 
finding the artist inside you. I'm not yeah, sure. sure. Yes. So you're 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 hoping in the background to find the inner Stieglitz, the, the young inner, artist. Yeah. Yes, the inner At the Stieglitz. same time, you're doing animations to start. What kind of cartoons did you do in the beginning? At first, animation was completely new for me, so I had to learn it from learn it from the scratch. What what means animation? Yeah. Okay. Twelve pictures per second to 25 pictures per second you have to draw every you have to draw every picture and there were some first exercises mm -hmm. like a running man a, a walking man like yeah. there was a the tomato man okay This was one of the first exercises Tell us about the yeah. tomato man <laughs> the thing with the tomato man was a kind of famous uh, animation director paul Driesen. okay he comes from canada okay paul Driesen. he won several prizes and he was my animation professor And he did already did the drawing of this tomato man, and he wanted us to teach how to not only draw the your own characters but draw his character, okay, and animate his character. And the story was that there is a tomato coming from the side, and he is going to duck down. Yeah, sure. And the head is going to pop go, up, pop up, to pop up, and right. the tomato goes right between the head and the head. And then he goes up again and has his head back on his head. So yeah, okay. th that's the the whole story. And you could could make it really easy, like whoop, whoop, and back up mm -hmm. and down, mm -hmm. or like he hears something and then looks there and oh, scream! And so yeah. it, it was a kind of very 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 easy story, but you could already discover your kind of storytelling or. And at the same time, you're learning the mechanics of animation. Yes. How to make a body squish down. Yes. And how yes. to make it come back up. Yeah. And yeah. The, yeah. The, the kind of stuff that happens when the hat goes above and, and the, the tomato comes in between. Yeah. What kind of initial characters did you were you making as an animator? At that day, I was very interested in the uh, dark future apocalyptic things. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I like to draw people with uh, gas masks mm -hmm. and some kind of, yes, backpack and strange things hanging around there. Some kind of, yes, post-apocalyptic guy living there. And I like to draw those things. If you try to animate or to do a run cycle, you, you, you call it cycle, if you can repeat it and repeat it, you only have to draw one or two steps and mm -hmm. then you can repeat it. It's called cycle, walking yeah. cycle, running cycle. and Who's that famous 19th century photographer that would do a horse running? Mybridge. Mybridge. It's my like bridge. a Mybridge yes. exercise, yes. right? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. That, that's a little bit like an animation version of the Mybridge photographs yes. of a horse running or a man running or something and, and like that. Back in the days, you could do the, uh, put those um, animations in, in a circle, in a circle and thing and you could... Yes. Zoetrope or what I think. So yes, yeah, yes, and yeah. there's this small spot, and through this spot you can already see a, a movement. Yeah, yeah, a cycle, a cycle a movement. Cycle. So. Yeah. So you're interested in animation, you're interested in drawing, and then you become interested in film. Did you do animated films that led up to that, or did you now say, I went ahead in the film direction, in the filmmaker direction? Two things happened while I was doing those uh, animation exercises. Mm -hmm. The first thing was that I discovered that Telling the the story of a guy walking down a, a road, this isn't the story yet, but telling that would take me days and days to animate that. It's so hard to, and, and it's so 
time-consuming animation if you're doing it on your own. You know, the Why Disney studios, they have animator? hundreds of animators right. who do the work. And they are creative people who uh, make up the characters and who make up the story and who make up the main poses. You call them keyframes. Those are the main poses and there are in-betweeners right. drawing the in-between frames. And I was thinking about, would I love to end up doing hundreds and hundreds of the same drawings again and again? I wanted to tell stories. That's what I discovered. I wanted to tell stories. And was animation film the, the medium which would make me happy, which I would choose to tell my stories? And I was uh, very, I think after a few months already, I learned to know no. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was the time, the, th the second thing that happened was that Toy Story came to the cinema. Okay, the, yeah, the first Toy Story. The original, yeah. So that's when they all got made about uh, 3D computer animation. Sure. And I was thinking this wasn't, The way doing traditional cell animation it's was maybe the wrong horse to... Right, yes. yeah. yeah. Sorry, it's like a horse compared to a car in a way. Yeah. That's when I... A third thing happened that time because the, the animators, they were all kind of more introverted. They sat down in the, in the cellar. It really was a cellar at the mm -hmm. art school. And everyone had his proje project, had his earphones on, and everyone was drawing, 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 next, drawing, drawing, drawing. And I didn't like the atmosphere because I already knew it from home when you're drawing and you're inside your zone. But it's, mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to be... I like to be on my own and I like to be in my zone, but I like to uh, be with people and have conversations and do some social interaction. And that's when I saw when that the film class, this was a bunch of guys sticking together, helping together. They were making films together. The one made the breads and the, the other one hold, picked up the lights and the third one colored the room because it, they wanted it to be red. And it was, it was real collaboration. And I wanted to be part of that. And I wanted to try that. And I wanted to learn more about, about the visual storytelling And it's hard to learn that with animation because mm -hmm. it's so slow. Mm -hmm. It's so slow. Nowadays, do you uh, you prefer filmmaking to animation still? Yes, is that true. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, that launched you. At this time, you find that your love of storytelling. By the time you're getting out of school and you've done Spielzeugland and Station, you're also deciding I want to be more of a filmmaker than an animator. But you've also got this. Talking about, let's say, superpower of your fast drawing ability. So, in, in a way, it must have been hard to decide. Fate decided for me. Okay, good, yes. <laughs> Because good. When, when the movie Spielzeugland came out, mm -hmm. and I went to festivals and it won uh, some prizes, and yeah. it could have been my entrance into the film industry, but then my wife became very ill. So, uh, and my, my first daughter was born and this, she became ill with uh, the pregnancy of the second daughter. That's where the, the um, leukemia was diagnosed. And from that day on, there was no more time for moving making. And all the, the doors that maybe had opened mm -hmm. for some centimeters mm -hmm. after that year, or it was more two years yeah. that I was involved in the family stuff, they closed again. Every year... There are new students coming from the art school, from film schools, and are they are all good and they, are, they have interesting final exam films. So my final exam, my, my Spielzeugland kind of got 
dusty. And then fate decided. Some uh, friend of mine asked me if if I would, if I could draw at a wedding as a gift. I could draw the guests of the wedding. He would okay. give me three hundred euro. And, and this said, was what? like ten years ago, or yes, even, okay. it was like ten years ago. Okay, so you were invited to do quick, quick etching, quick schnellzeichnen. Schnellzeichnen, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I, I did those caricatures of photos before, but there were sometimes when I tried to maybe draw Brad Pitt. Yeah. Okay. And I tried it. I had the photos, and I kind of I erased, and I tried it another time, and I erased again, and after an hour or so. I kind of ah, you cannot draw this face. He's un mm. undrawable. So I always was afraid of. I feared because people always asked me, "You could draw live. You could draw at the street. Draw live caricatures." And I always said, "No. What would I do if if this Brad Pitt if, if Brad sits Pitt in front came of me? to the wedding? <laughs> well, if we say in English, you'd be up shit creek without a yeah. paddle. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So Brad Pitt, fortunately, but Brad Pitt has not come to these weddings. No. So you're able to start doing yes. this as a sideline, right? And, and Brad Pitt is a bad example because he has a good face to draw. Uh -huh. I would say 60% of the people have boring faces. Uh -huh. There are only few people having those special faces, easy to caricature faces, like you. You have an easy face. Oh. Well, and I know he did me. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking now to the audience. Uh, Daniel did me in about five minutes. But he did it. He did a nicer version and he sent it to me, uh, you know, a couple of days later. He does occasionally, Daniel, you do occasionally then go back to the drawing board and then you make it a little nicer. So <laughs> yes, you do that. I know the people. Yeah. yeah. But you, okay, tell us how you started this wedding and then ever since then have you been asked to come yes, to number Yes, this wedding. It was a special wedding. It was a special igniting uh, event for me. Okay, Is yeah, okay, okay, yeah. Because I had uh, the experience for the first time that the, uh, that the people loved the drawings I fucked up. I always heard behind me, oh, it's totally her eyes. Oh, it's totally her smile. <laughs> in, in my mind, it was like, fuck, <laughs> I really messed it up. And on the other side, when I was thinking, oh, this was a spot on caricature, I heard, oh, is this really me? Yeah. Do I have this kind of nose? Uh -huh. No, this isn't me. I think the other ones were good, but this isn't me. Uh -huh. So I, I learned that it's very, very subjective. Yes, it is. The and people have another themselves? image yeah, of image. themselves, yes, right. in yes. their in their head. And some are funny enough, and some are humorous, and some get caricatures. And there are there are people who who simply don't get how caricature they they don't mm -hmm. get it. You could give them a perfect caricature of Brad Pitt, and they wouldn't recognize him. Ah, who is this going to be? Is this yeah, uh, Sharon Stone? No, is this? It's about brains. Brains. Mm -hmm. There are people who don't get three dimensional objects and their brain just don't get if you exaggerate and i am also assuming some people's ego becomes involved yes, so they surely. become maybe grouchy at you yeah, for drawing yeah, yeah. them with a bigger nose than they think they have yes, yes, yes. now when you're at a wedding and you're doing schnellzeichnen when you're doing caricatures do you occasionally you must get people who get grouchy grumpy i mean they're there for a good time you're at a wedding yes yes when i do those wedding Normally, if I draw live caricatures at a wedding, wedding or at a trade exhibition or at a gala dinner, I'm always very, very fair, and I kind of uh, have my hand brakes on. Okay. You know, if I draw celebrities and I don't have to give them their drawing, I don't have to meet them. I can, I can go over the top. Over the top. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And I try mm -hmm. to to do whatever I can to get as much exaggeration. 
within keeping the likeness. That's the mm -hmm. most important thing. Likeness for me is the most important thing. If someone asks, uh, who is this supposed to be? I think I failed in doing a caricature. This exaggeration tool, I can choose how strong I use the, the, the exaggeration tool. Mm -hmm. And if every time I'm at a wedding, I I'm try to be very kind to the women. Women are always more... Please leave the double chin out. Uh, and the, <laughs> the number one sentence from men is always, please more hair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I try to make it funny and I try to be true to caricature because uh. caricature means exaggeration. So if there, someone has a big nose, I have to give him a big nose. Otherwise, it wouldn't be the it wouldn't be a caricature and it wouldn't mm -hmm. be a drawing of this person. But yeah. I try to be gentle. I try to be as as fair as I can within the frame of doing a caricature. And do you get a lot of these gigs where you're going to weddings or you're going to fairs or whatever, business meetings? Daniel, please come and do this yes. wedding. Yeah. How, much, how much a year, approximately? It's about 100 a year. Really? Yes. So you're, you're on the road. You're going to, getting on the Bundesbahn and going to the yes. train to yes. various towns. So this is 90%, I would say, of my income right now. Wow. Yeah. And I like being around and I like uh, making people happy and I like seeing other places mm -hmm. and I have enough time in between of, for doing my stuff. Mm -hmm. I try to, I, I really try to do my stuff and I have to, I think this is my personal goal is to try to uh, realize my projects more mm -hmm. and not only live for those, for the money and yeah. Because it's very well paid. And Good for you. Yes. I, I am delighted. Well, for one thing, I always love it when artists make a living. When you talk about on your website, you have this sentence, Alles, was Sie benötige, ist drei Minuten Zeit. In English, I would translate this, All you guys need is three minutes of time. And uh, I got to admit, my mind boggled at this. I thought three mi minutes to draw something that captures the essence of a person. How do you mechanically, as an artist, how do you sit down and then the guy sits down across from you? How do you do that? Yes. Three minutes can be pretty long. I imagine you having to go to the toilet and having to wait for three minutes. Th those three minutes can be really long or, or someone wants to, to pull off a teeth out of your mouth and it, it, it would take like three minutes. Imagine that. How, how long three minutes can be? You can make children in three minutes. So three minutes really aren't that short as, as you might think in the first. I started to drawing without pencil sketch. The first two or three gigs I did with a pre-pencil sketch. I sketched the, I sketched the, the face and then I did a, an ink version and then I erased the, the pencil. But there was a, at the, the fourth gig, uh, there was the line was so long of people waiting so that the customer told me, you have to be quicker, you have to be quicker. And there was only one way to become quicker, and it was to uh, leaving out the pencil sketch. Mm -hmm. So from the very beginning, I would say, uh, I started drawing without pencil sketch. And even within 10 seconds, you can draw some kind of face. I always start with the nose. My method is, uh, <laughs> yes, uh, my method is that I have, you know, the normal face, like the... Um, anatomical correct the perfect face mm -hmm. uh, I have the the perfect face is etched in into my mind and there are a few uh, versions of that so I have this perfect face for for girls and boys 
So, and I have them for three-year-old, for seven-year-old, for a seven-year-old has another another phase than a 50-year-old. Mm -hmm. So you have to have those archetype-like uh, perfect faces already in your mind. So I could draw a three-year-old girl without any object. I could draw them out of uh, her out of my mind. Mm -hmm. And I think you should be able to do that as a caricature artist. So I have those perfect faces. Like a, a layer, I put them over the one I'm, I'm drawing. Okay. In my mind. Okay. I, I see you and I adding the, the that layer on your face, onto your face of okay. the, the perfect face, helps me seeing what makes your face unique. I see. Okay. What differs from the normal face. And that helps me choosing what to exaggerate and what to put where. Okay. So if I, I'm gonna draw a caricature of you, just not visually, but with talking. If you could, could you look a bit to the left? So, and I can see that you're, for a, um, a man, men have stronger noses, but your nose isn't, I would say, not that strong. It's kind of a tiny nose, the strong at the, going to the forehead, the bridge, the bridge is kind of stronger. Your eyes are pretty small, and so I would have drawn your nose, a smaller nose, Stronger bridge, your eyes are very small, so I would make them even smaller, and they are um, very—they are far away from the nose. Okay. So I would push that a little Wider. further. Uh -huh. So okay. I have the nose and the two eyes, okay. and you have—I would say—strong eyebrows, and they go downwards. So you could exaggerate that, putting them more downwards and making them even a bit stronger. So your forehead is large. You have a large... You I can, do have a big forehead. So yeah. you can make that larger, larger. I'm drawing the forehead right now. And your chin compared to the forehead, your chin goes out. So you don't have a um, flying, escaping chin. In Germany, okay. you say like escaping chin if uh -huh. you don't have a chin. <laughs> so your chin pops out a bit, but uh -huh. it's small, very, very small compared to your forehead. And your cheeks here, uh -huh. they are strong. Mm -hmm. I could would draw them even a bit stronger. And you have those wrinkles on the mm -hmm. side of your eyes. Mm -hmm. I would say they are important for your face. And then now I've two minutes. Yeah. So I, I see your, the, your forehead, even the, the hair. Uh -huh. You can make it a bit stronger. They look a bit loose. And they, you try to cover what, <laughs> what yeah. isn't there. <laughs> You've caught me. Yes. You've caught me, yeah. But and you have a very significant, strong um, neck. Neck, uh -huh. I would say. Your, your ears aren't important uh, at all, so your ears are pretty normal ear. And strong shoulders. And mm. now I would say it's two, two and a half minutes. And I would mm. add some grace to make your, um, to put the the eyes more inside of your your face. Mm -hmm. They are kind of inside. They're back. It's pretty black. Back. back. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. I would blacken that, and I would try to. You have a. A smaller or thin, thin, thin mouth. Lips, I think thin yeah. lips. Yes, mm -hmm. and small teeth. Are they? Small? Kind of yeah, they're, they're pretty they're small. small. And I would add some wrinkles now at yeah. the forehead, and yeah. now three minutes ready. So oh, this, this is the kind it. like I would have drawn it more yeah. or less. That is fascinating. That yes. is absolutely fascinating. So I think that's actually a, in terms of a slice of life about how an artist works. That's an amb uh, ambition, a uh, Lebensausschnitt or something. Yes about how a, an artist works. 
All you need is three minutes of time. We've just had a quick analysis by uh, Mr. Stieglitz about how that works. So it's it's very interesting to do because your hand is working the whole time when you'd be doing this. What yes. you're thinking, you're telling us what you're thinking yes. while your hand would be busy yeah, yeah, drawing yeah. it. But I have to, can I add Yes, please, thing? please. Um, because this uh, three minutes is a, a bit of a lie because I don't like drawing only faces. I, I told you that I love storytelling. And I try to do that storytelling within my caricatures. Mm -hmm. So what bores me is to go to weddings and only draw the heads. Sometimes I have to because there are so many heads and faces and, and the customer asks me, please go for quantity and not for quality. But what I most enjoy in, in drawing caricatures, live caricatures, is asking the people about their hobbies. So I, I start So talking with the people and they say, oh, I like to play soccer and I like to, to travel a lot. Oh, where's the, the next trail is going to Germany. And I have two children. And we, those three informations, playing soccer, traveling to Germany and having three children, this is kind of a story for me already. And yeah. I try to put that within the drawing. So most of my caricatures are large heads, smaller bodies. And I try to tell the, those personal and very unique uh, stories of the people that sit in front of me, I try to put them within the drawings. Mm -hmm. So you could, for example, give him a German dress or mm -hmm. give him a beer mm -hmm. and then the, the like two children could... and beer. Brezel and beer to, for Germany, uh -huh, yes. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Or having a, a, a soccer ball with a brezel sure. or instead of a, a soccer ball, a brezel, playing soccer with a brezel or something yeah. like that. <laughs> and having the children running behind him and saying, Papa, we want to come too or something like that. Yeah, sure. And this is what I enjoy, what makes caricature drawing a bit like filmmaking for me or like storytelling. So this is the aspect I, I found within that niche that interests me. On another level, your other projects, I know you're a storyboarder. You, you do storyboards. Not you, anymore, but not I so did much. a lot of, yes. Well, it, can I ask you about storyboards? Because you mentioned earlier, um, this, of course, the classic storyboard is a filmmaker will say, uh, here's my script, I want you to make a storyboard of it. And the script tells the story, but... Like a comic book drawer, a storyboard artist has to turn the words on the page into a series of pictures that tell the story. Talk to us a little bit about the storyboard work you've done and, and how you get the inspiration by reading a script or your own scripts and how you make a story. In storyboarding, it's all about the director. There are directors mm -hmm. who have a, a really strong vision mm -hmm. about how every shot is going to look like. Sometimes I did a lot of commercial storyboarding. So okay. I, I think 50 to 100 commercials. Most of the time, the, the directors, because every, every image counts a lot in 30 seconds, so the directors have to have a visual way of, of telling the story. So most of the time in those commercial storytelling, either I get very, very bad scribbles from the directors, mm -hmm. or they write down their shot list. So they write like point of view, from the, the girl looking at the beach, then a wide shot of the beach, then a detail of the sun cream, and then another detail, so kind of that way. And then with my knowledge of filmmaking of, and of visual storytelling, I, I try to make it as easy to read for the audience afterwards. I, I have the audience afterwards in my mind, and it's, you can make a, a science out of that. 
to what does it mean if someone is on the left something is on the left side of the frame or is it on the right side or it gets the the lighting from the left side or do you use movement to recognize the object or do you use lighting to recognize the object or make it important or do you use color to make the object recognize or more easy to recognize it's all about reading the single shots so that your head can put it together to the story as easy as possible without jumps the goal as few jumps as possible as few jumps as possible yeah. yes now i i have to ask this because i've always liked comic books you mentioned you like comic books too uh, presumably you've read all, read you've read all kinds of comic books too yes it strikes me that a lot of comic books are really good storyboards you're talking about now when you do a 30 second commercial how many drawings are in a, typically in a 30 second commercial Let's say uh, a 90 minute film, there are presumably hundreds of drawings, yes. or there could be. Yes. But in a uh, commercial, how many drawings? In you, you normally cut every one to two seconds. So if you have 30 seconds, it's from, from 10 to 20 drawings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sometimes 30 drawings, sometimes only five drawings, because sometimes it's a kind of single shot thing or it's cut, reverse cut. So oh, you don't have to draw every every single shot. So approximately 15, 15 drawings for 30 seconds. Have you storyboarded all of your own films? Yes, yes. It's For me, this is one of the most satisfying moments in filmmaking. Turning the idea into a, a story. So this for me is the first very satisfying moment to see I have an idea and can I turn it into a story? Then comes the second screenwriting it's very hard and it's oh, time consuming and it's it's a, a battle i wouldn't say that it's the most fun thing but after the screenwriting of your after you have the script the second very entertaining thing comes it's like the the storyboarding to visualize your stuff you you can only draw a storyboard if you have you have already some seen some locations And if you have talked to the costume designer and if you maybe have already actors, talking to actors is very uh, cool. Choosing the casting process. I like the casting process. I like going out and looking at locations and having the, having the scene in your mind and seeing, oh, could this take place in this room? And after you've, you've seen the location, it's so much fun to, to kind of draw your comic I always draw very shitty storyboards for my own film because I get, don't get paid and I want to and it has to be fast because I want to draw as as many pictures as possible. And the third fun is you know shooting. Shooting mm -hmm. is fun too, but you have to make lots of compromises too. The time the people get hungry, everyone wants to smoke, everyone wants to drink coffee, 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 coffee. You would just love to work yeah. and, but The whole, the big machine is so slow. It slows you, you down. You can't, it's not having a pen and a white paper, having your own speed. I guess here is one of those places where the collaborative part of filmmaking can be somewhat exhausting. It's because, exhausting, but yeah. so beautiful too. Yeah. Having people around you mm -hmm. and discussing your story, the, your initial story, and you discuss about characters that, that, that aren't alive. Characters you made up and you talk about What would that character do in this situation? And it's really, it's magic. Magic. <laughs> magic. You've also produced more films. 
happy end, jede Geschichte braucht ein Ende, which a happy end, each story needs an ending, I guess you'd say in English, yes. perhaps. Happy yeah. end was, was very important for me. So I, I had a, the idea in my mind of a, for a horror movie mm -hmm. or a horror thriller movie. Yeah. The first idea was that there were twins and a very, very bad father who mistreated the children and he, who always, who kept it a secret that he had twins. And that way he could keep uh, one of his daughters in the cellar and the other one had a, <laughs> and he, he changed them. And then the, the idea was what would happen if the father with one of the, the daughters had an accident? And no one knows that there's another uh, Oh, my. Child the other so, daughter, the hidden yeah, daughter. Yeah, the hidden daughter. Oh, what so, a story. I cannot tell you how I came to this story, but it just came, <laughs> it really just came to my mind. This It's very constructed. Uh -huh. And you could say, nah, it's too very much constructed. No one would believe that. Uh -huh. But this was my story. And then my, my own grandma, who lived in a, in a house, And she got older and older and uh, had to go into a kind of... Pflegeheim? Pflegeheim. Which is a, a, a convalescent home or a place yes. that older people go to get cared for. And my mom, who lives uh, around the corner, she said, you can have the house for half a year, if mm -hmm. you like. After, mm -hmm. after that, I have, to, I have to rent it again. Mm -hmm. uh, no, so, yes. And that's when I thought about making a really long happy end is a 19 minute yeah. uh, a really feature piece. Film. Yeah. and I was in the second year of Kunstschule mm -hmm. and I wrote in within two or three months so if, in my opinion very quick I wrote yeah. that script and I already had it had the the house of my grandmother in in the mind so mm -hmm. I could really write the script for the for my hometown for this building I knew that there was a cellar I knew that I knew, knew everything so it was like a bit like Hollywood for me because I had the perfect location and I tried yeah. to make the to squeeze the story into that perfect location and that's then I started to cast and then I asked the the other students would you spend the next four weeks with me in Bavaria mm -hmm. somewhere and do this movie with me and they all uh, let me read the script first and they all were so excited oh great kind of sounds like a real movie because there were Lots of arty movies yeah. at the Kunstschule that no one really got. And this was a real movie with a story and, a, and, and kind of exciting and a surprise ending. And mm -hmm. kind of was a, like the stuff you really would like to see in the cinema. And so this was really magic time for me doing shooting that movie in the house of my grandmother where I lived my childhood. Who did you get for actors? There's a, a, a homepage mm -hmm. where you can, it's for movie makers, filmmakers, mm -hmm. yeah. and it's for actors and for filmmakers. You, you say, I, have a, I want to, to do a short film and I need a 20-year-old, a I won't pay you any money, please send me your uh, pictures if you're interested. And that way, other film students or acting students who are interested in not earning money and spending <laughs> their life having experience, mm -hmm. so, and that's, that's where, how the casting went. I have another interesting story. For this bad father, I needed. I needed a really strong face. I needed someone who had a, a believable, who could, could be a monster in his face. Mm -hmm. There's another side about hundreds of actors. You can just write the age. He should be between 50 and 60. And there are hundreds of uh, pictures. And I just picked out three to four people. 
and I then wrote to the agents, I'm a student, I want to make this movie, you're going to be a, a horror dad, um, I won't pay any money, I will pay the maybe the train, the traveling expenses. And then someone called me back and he read the script and he said, I like it, do you know, do you know who I am? And I said, uh, no, I just liked your face. Mm -hmm. I think you would be perfect. And this was Erwin Leder. I'm not sure if you know him, but he was one of the guys from Das Boot. Oh, yeah. I saw Das Boot. I've seen Das Boot three times. Yes. And uh -huh. he was the, the ghost. Johann the ghost. You oh, know, the, the guy from the... In the machine shop. Yeah. <laughs> There's yeah, this right, famous sure, picture yeah. of someone screaming, all yeah. sweaty and yeah. uh, putting some kind of... And this was him. And he even had some Hollywoodish uh, experiences too. Underworld. He had a he had some part in the movie Underworld. He played a he has a strong Austrian accent. He's from Austria. And he said, "Okay, I like this. So you di didn't just pick me because of because I'm I played in the sport. You just picked me out of my face. Oh, I like that. I'm gonna be so he was there for two days. So we had some kind of famous actor in yeah. the movie. Yes. Uh -huh. And he was very professional and he was He didn't make us look bad mm -hmm. as students. It wasn't a professional film set, but he made us look very good and he had very good ideas and he tried to work with me. And That's great. great. What a good experience. And then so you ended up with this film. It's kind of spooky. It yes, sounds it like it is, yeah, you know, yes. gruselig, I guess you'd say in Deutsch or Gänsehaut or something like that. You made this film and then... Did you do your own editing too, or yes. you, you've also, so you've always done your own editing? Yes. Too. Do you like editing? Yeah. I like. This editing. is the last part. Yeah, right. <laughs> I would have mentioned it. Uh, yeah. Yes, editing is like putting the puzzle together. It's yeah. so. Yeah, it is. Ah, it's um, if you, sometimes you shoot a scene, the one day, and a week after that you you shoot the the scene who, who comes directly right. after the first scene. So someone opens the door. And a week later, you shoot the the following scene and putting it together and seeing ah, it works. Yeah, it, you always it, was it Billy Wilder or Alfred Hitchcock who said um, movie making is lying twenty four frames per second, something <laughs> like that. It's, and it, it is lying. Yeah, You're always yeah. pretending, pretending, lying, pretending that there was. Yeah. For example, if there's a, a, a shot with a. A sofa in it, and you you know that behind the sofa are sitting the camera guy and the other one with the right, the micro, yeah. and yeah. you know that it, it is it's still magic for me to see the movie and to to see behind that. Apropos your uh, schnellzeiting, you are also and how I met you. Yes. you are an improviser, a, a, an improv comedy person here in Kassel. So that you have been a group for fifteen years now, something like that. Bit more than ten or eleven, or ten, okay. I would say ten, eleven. And uh, there's how many members in the group at this point? Thirteen, fourteen. Yeah. How many? T how often are you doing uh, shows, gigs? Ten to fifteen times per year. Yeah. So, okay. Yes. So it's more a, or less. it's a, a love of yours. It's also a yes. hobby. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, improv theater, you have to get a suggestion from the audience, yes. like a like a caricaturist. You get a suggestion, you have to start with that, and you have to do something immediately. I can't help but think that this is something similar to Schnellzeichnen, to caricaturing. Do you do you think there's some similarities there? About and tell us about how you think your mind might work in a similar fashion when you're improvising as when you're drawing. There are similarities, I would say. 
there are many, many, many similarities between improv theater and movie making and storytelling, definitely. So from that aspect, I, I did. I started improv theater because my film professor said said I have to work on working with actors. I should start becoming an actor to learn how actors think. So this was why I, I started improv theater. And it kind of changed my life, improv theater. Dealing with the moment and saying yes. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the key points for me in improv theater, saying yes. We should mention that uh, it's sort of a philosophy of improv theater to say yes to situations. When you get a suggestion or when I'm working with you in a scene and you say, well, I'm going to do a caricature of, of you. And I could say yes. And I'd especially like it if you emphasize my beautiful yes. nose which looks like Brad Pitt's nose yeah, and yeah. then you say yes I'll do that and as a matter of fact so in other words we build on each other's yeah. work ping pong we, yeah we ping sometimes pong. say ping pong yes giving the ball back yes and saying yes to the moment even if you I think you don't have to say yes that's what I learned afterwards you don't have to say yes I'm going to draw the caricature it would be blocking if I say ah oh, nah I don't like this is pure blocking but if I would say Uh, no, I cannot draw the caricature of you because my hand is ill. I think if you give a reason, they say no, and, but. Yes, yeah, but. You have a reason there. Uh -huh. And if you give some kind of ball back, building with uh, saying no, you can even build with saying no. Mm -hmm. But uh, saying yes. So when I do caricatures, and I, I try to not erase. I cannot erase because I'm drawing with ink. Right. And so this is something I learned from improv theater. Accepting, accepting, saying yes, making decisions and be happy with failing. Because often, very, very often, I make the wrong decision drawing a caricature, putting the, the one stroke in the wrong space or seeing, oh, the large. Sometimes I think the, the eyes are big, but they are not big, but only maybe abroad or, or close together. So I clearly decide wrong. But then I'll, I'm not throwing the paper away, but I stick to the, my decision. I'm accepting it, saying yes. And I try to do, I, I try to be even more concentrated with the rest of the caricature. I try to do is even better than be more, look better, try to be more funny with the, the body situation. So this is what I learned from improv theater, saying yes, accepting failure, being in the moment. And that's, in a lot of ways, the same sort of thing. You've just described the similarities between that and drawing, and drawing something fast and drawing a caricature fast. Do you, um, and you also mentioned similarities, or the, what it's taught you about storytelling yeah. and being in a scene. Do you find yourself, too, as an improviser, finding characters that you have that are somewhat caricatures? In other words, they're like archetypes. Yes, I haven't, I really, it's very interesting. I haven't thought about the similarities between caricature drawing and improv that much. Because I, I always come from the filmmaking, dramaturgy and writing. Those are the connections I see all the time. I'm the one who's uh, standing on the side when I'm not in the scene and analyzing and seeing, oh, maybe this could happen and maybe this would be, would be good for the uh, dramaturgy. This could add uh, a good excitement or this could add a yeah. good element so yeah. i come from the theoretical movie making writing drama thing but caricature definitely archetypes they are caricatures the, the one thing is completely visual caricatures mm -hmm. 
are completely visual. I often hear people saying, you completely got his character. But I don't know the people sitting in front of me. I don't know the, their character. I, I cannot see in the mind of someone. I can see if, if he or she is shy. I can see if he or she is laughing a lot. Then I try to make a positive drawing. But I, I don't know the people. But even with only drawing their face and exaggerating here and there, the people project the characters into the caricature. This is interesting. I've, yeah. I've heard that a lot. Yeah. Oh, you, you completely got the, their inner self. But I don't know their inner yeah, self. Yeah. I just see a, a large nose, as I, as I yeah. showed you. Yeah. Uh, smaller eyes, it's just completely. story, story, story. Pretending, yeah. pretending, pretending. So even if there are similarities, I would say the one is completely visual and the other thing is, would you say, intellectual? It, I can see that. It's making sure. up and it's things that, that aren't there. And sometimes, it, I'm not sure if, if it happens to you too, but I'm a, I'm a visual guy. I wanted to ask you this question, which is a classic one for an artist. You're now approaching 40. Yes. You, you've been doing this for a number of years. I mean, what would you imagine happening in your career for the next 10 years? I would love to do a movie again because I love doing especially the first one, Happy End. It was such a great experience. And what I would really love to do is write a book. I'm writing a lot right now because making movies is, is very expensive because you need many people. So most of the art disciplines are combined within a movie. You have to write, you have to do costumes, you have to sculpts, you have to compose music, you have to act. Nearly all of the photography, light, playing with light, so nearly all of, of the, the classic art elements are combined within a movie or within filmmaking. That's why filmmaking is so expensive and so time-consuming. It's hard to make a movie on your own. So you at least have to have One, one guy behind the camera, one for the microphone, two or three actors, someone who gets the food, someone... Even a small team is 10 people, I would say. And if you are a student, you have lots of time, you can say, okay, I'm going to spend the next month with you and you don't have to pay me. But everyone has to pay for the rent and for the family. So right now I would have to pay the people. And but I would love to do a movie again and I would love to write the book for the movie and... I would love it to be a more fantastic movie. You've also written books. Are they Dragon Geats as Nicht? There's no more dragons. Yes. There aren't really such yeah, a thing yeah. as a dragon. Perhaps that's better. Let's talk about Dragon Geats as Nicht. Uh, what is interesting is that I love to listen to audiobooks. I listen to lots of audiobooks while drawing, while being on the road. And one day I thought if an audiobook is like the normal audiobook is 15 hours long, I would say, from 10 to 20, some, some are 30. So let's say 15 hours for 300 pages or 350 pages. And I was thinking, if you could consume a whole book within 15 hours, it should be possible to dictate, to dictate a book within 15 hours. So to write a book within 15 hours while dictating it. And that's when I started to gather information about dictating software and I found a very good software and I tried it and it was fascinating that it really worked. Some ideas are ideas for movies, for, for longer stories, some are maybe for short stories or for only for 
improv plays mm -hmm. or for a song. And one of those stories was about a boy finding a, uh, an egg and then a, a small dragon comes out. And it plays in Bavaria, where I was grown up, where I grew up. The, the town nearby has some kind of dragon play. Every year, a dragon, a huge dragon, is, walks through the city with a, together with hundreds of people. And then there's a play. And for everyone in this town, it's totally normal that, that there's this dragon theme. Yeah. And it's everywhere in this city. And my uh, the story was some boy moves from the from North Germany to this small Bavarian town, and they are all mad about dragons. And then he gets lost in the forest, in the Bavarian forest, and there he kind of falls into a hole. And there he finds this real egg, huge egg. And the, there's a small dragon, and he helps them. He, um, the boy helps the dragon to get back to his family. This is the story. And I wrote it down on one or two uh, pages. And one day, my improv colleague, Axel, he had a knee injury. So he had to, to lay for about days or weeks. And I said, let's, let's do this story together. And I visited him for Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And together, we dictated the book. I told him about the story and we prepared two large papers with the characters and another paper with the, the structure. This is the, the beginning, there's a turning point and this might happen in this direction and afterwards he gets back. And so the, the very loose structure and then we, we just dictated it uh, one after the other. Sometimes uh, someone dictated two chapters Sometimes one chapter, one chapter, one chapter, and said, I'm, I'm not sure how it's gonna. Ah, I have an idea. Okay, let me, let me do it, let me do it. And then, yeah. and he was always lying there with his uh, injured knee, and I was always walking around like a tiger in front mm -hmm. of him. And you can, it, it's really uh, magic too, because you can close your eyes. You do, you, I always have to, while writing, I have, I'm always looking and correcting, and my two, two sides of the brain, brain yeah. and they are always like disturbing each other. The one is seeing mistakes and the other one wants to be creative. And while um, dictating, you can really put the rational half away and you can just close your eyes and you, you, you know that there are improv games like movie director where, or typewriter or something yeah, like sure, that. Yeah. Yes, mm -hmm. where you do the same. It's, it was a night and the rain was falling down. And, and this is what we did in this weekend. And it was it really was a magic <laughs> uh, so too, yes. That's where you came up with uh Drakens Gibtesnicht? The idea I had way before. Okay. Uh -huh. I had it written down and I proposed it to my colleague and yeah. said, Would you join me telling mm -hmm. this story? And then both of us uh, sat down and in this weekend we had after this weekend we had I think one hundred pages. Uh, it slept for a few months mm -hmm. the project. And then, unfortunately, my wife had to go to hospital again. Leukemia came back. And so I, I was spent a lot of time in her hospital room. Mm -hmm. And I, so I had the time again. And I, I, I fetched those 100 pages again. And I kind of tried it. Now the, the second brain half could uh, come forward and could add some structure and add some, see, some yeah. nice words. And after this... Two weeks in the hospital, I had 200 pages. So I kind of stretched it and tried to 
does the book have Stieglitz pictures in it too? Yes. Oh, this was fun again. Uh -huh, Can you imagine? Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. I'm almost talking about magic, but this is so satisfying. If you made up the story and you wrote, I wrote it together with Axel. So I mean, uh -huh. it's not my book. Mm -hmm. We really dictated it together. And many of his ideas came uh, additionally. I, I didn't have... There are um, storylines and characters, and so we really did it together. But it's like storyboarding yeah. again, drawing the the pictures for your own book. It's I can show you the book yeah. afterwards. Yeah, it was a very nice experience. In the end, you know, you've done all these different kinds of work. You've been an animator. You've been a filmmaker. You're an improviser. You're a writer. You're also a Schnellzeichner. You're also a caricaturist. You've done all these sort of things, and it's fascinating to talk to you. And I think it's one of those things where I think it's inspirational. And also, just the notion, in some ways, you've described some methods for for actualizing your art, for making it happen. You've described how to draw a face. For me, this has been a fascinating interview, and I hope it has for you. And I look forward to uh, Snap Sessions bringing it out for you. And uh, I just want to mention, you mentioned earlier that you might be able to do a drawing of the Snap Sessions brothers. And, of course, we would invite that and be very happy about that. Too. I will. They yes. will. But I will, won't be that kind uh -huh. <laughs> with those Snap Session brothers. Uh -huh. I would try to make really mean caricatures. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, we would like that, too. But I just want to say I thank you very much, Daniel, for this opportunity Thanks to talk to you. Me. And we are delighted that you're involved in Snap Sessions and keep up the good work. Thanks. Thank you, Daniel. Bye-bye. Thanks to our tech meister, Marshall Downtown Brown. And thanks to our jack-of-all-trades, Ken Krauss. And thanks to our artist of the show, caricaturist, improviser, and filmmaker Daniel Stieglitz from Kassel in Germany. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Scour magazines. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an international outlook on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity and foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again. <laughs>